Rafael Lautari is a Cypriot PhD candidate at the Department of Archaeology at the University of Cambridge. His work focuses on the social dynamics and small-scale communities of the prehistoric Bronze Age in order to understand how the people within and among these communities negotiated and maintained their relationships and how and why the status quo would change over time, paving the pathway to more complex urban centers of the late Bronze Age. Now, other areas of interest involve the use of ethnoarchaeology for better understanding the dynamics linked to the traditional modes of production. Uh, and his project, uh, this project of his focuses on the traditional making of halloumi in the island of Cyprus and aims to better understand the role of dairying in the small-scale societies of the past. Uh, Rafael, welcome so and thank you for joining us. Thank you for your invitation, Andreas. It's a pleasure, honestly. So there's this word that um, came about where I, I, you know, I've never come across before, and I'd like to know a little bit more about it because you you use ethnoarchaeology as a lens for some of your work, and for an outsider looking in, this is a it's a, it's a new concept, and I was hoping you can just explain what ethnoarchaeology is and how, as an archaeologist, are you able to use this as a lens for your work? I think Andreas, that's actually the right way to start this conversation, honestly. Uh, ethnoarchaeology is actually a tool, more or less, that archaeologists developed over the years to increase the resolution of their archaeological interpretations. Let's say that it's ethnography done by archaeologists interested in answering questions that often have been ignored before. So, as you know, like we, the archaeologists, we like to study dead things. We usually end up with stuff that people have used in different ways in the past, somehow got discarded and buried throughout centuries, up until the moment our trowels more or less just pop them up. There is no one of the people that actually used those stuff to, to ask them questions about them. So in the end of the day, what we usually do is that we try to make associations about these materials with different materials, with their context, with their environment, and so on. So in the end of the day, what we do is that we create stories with, which tick a lot of different boxes. And the one that ticks the most, most of the boxes is the one that becomes our narrative up until the next one comes along, which is better. Mm -hmm. Archaeology fits in this in exactly in a way that refines our vision about the past. In a way, it gives us the opportunity to ask questions about, about the stuff that we are actually studying but not, of course, like the people of the past, but other people, more recent people, that they use similar things and they are producing them in a traditional mode of production, let's say. So still, it's not just sitting on a local cafe or let's say, in a village in Cyprus or, whatso or whatsoever and just talking with an old person and over a coffee or over some alcohol and just, you know, being like in a conversation and stuff. Sometimes... You do. We do have this, but we also have like there is a scientific protocol that needs to be followed. There are there is you need to have a hypothesis, let's say, and an archaeological question, and then you need to think and study a lot. What is the right analogy? What is the right place where these questions can actually give you the best and the most suitable answers for dealing with the questions of the past? And then you need to build in a way you are data collection protocols, and this could be interviews or hands-on involvement or observations, then you need to systematically analyze all the data. And then finally, you, you need to present your results in a way that links the past with the present. And that's the beauty of ethnoarchaeology, more or less. In one of your published works, you, you used halloumi, right, as, as the cheese to sort of explore Darien culture um, through the lens of ethnoarchaeology. Ethno now, I kind of want to give some context to this, I suppose, a theoretical framework. And you mentioned secondary products revolution. And again, as an outsider, I'm trying to sort of wrap my head around uh, the Bronze Age and, and trying to understand all the theoretical concepts that archaeologists have come up with to make sense of the past. So with regards to secondary product uh, products revolution, can you and explain what that is and what is its significance in triggering this change, this systemic alteration, I think you call it, in society. <laughs> well, 
Andreas, before we get there, I think you get the pattern here that we, the archaeologists, like to use a lot the, the word revolution in our <laughs> interpretations, I guess. I think in yeah. one of the previous podcasts, you had to deal with Neolithic revolution as well. Yes, I did. Well, personally, I don't, I don't like this word a lot. I don't think it's the right word that describes what it was happening in the past. Because mm-hmm. the main point is that our revolutions, in quotation marks, they miss the most important parts of what the revolution is. It meets like the rapid pace and the spontaneous nature. Because our revolutions do take a very long time. And I'm pretty sure the people experiencing these changes over time, they didn't really felt them as very revolutionary. They just came naturally one way or another. Right. It wasn't but, something that from one generation to the next necessarily. Yeah. Like no, overnight. Really. I think it's something that it's gradually embedded and changes and evolves like according to the different characteristics that we have around. But let's mm-hmm. let's go now to the secondary product revolution because I think actually it's a very it's a very cool model to talk about, even after 40 years. Everything started with this model, let's say, with a Hungarian archaeologist named Pugonyi in the 1970s, which he realized that animal products, the stuff that we can get from animals, can be separated, divided into two main categories, the primary products and the secondary products. The primary ones are what we get from an animal when after we kill the animal, after it's dead. It could be meat, it could be the bones. The secondary ones are all these things that we can get from an animal while it's still alive. And it could be the animal power, it could be wool, it could be milk, and many others. So this came in the, in, the, in the 70s, let's say. Beginning early 80s, there is this influential British archaeologist named Andrew Sherrod that steps on these concepts and comes around with this brilliant idea of the secondary products revolution. And... Based on what he had essentially at the time, the the kind of information that was available for him at the time, he noticed that around the 4th millennium BC in the Near East and the 3rd millennium BC in Europe, we get the first evidence, the first clear evidence of exploitation of of domesticated animals in terms of their secondary products. And he also spots an intensification of this exploitation. And at the same time, in these areas, we do have the emergence of the, of the more complex social systems. Let's simplify this by saying that we have the emergence of the first proper urban centers in, in the area. So he just thought that, you know, maybe the two could be linked together somehow. For example, the animal power. It could be linked with donkeys or horses moving around the landscape but this means that it increases the distance that people can move in a day but it also can increase the cargo that people can have with them and at the same time we can think of the cattle for example used in plowing this increased exponentially the potential that farming had for the people at the time so because now new environments and the new landscapes that they were not able to, to cultivate before, they become available. So Sharad thought that, you know, with the intensification of this exploitation of the secondary products of the animals, we have a greater an increase in productivity and in the mobility of the people, which directly or indirectly led to societal change, different dynamics among the relationships of people. And that was that's how we ended up, let's say with more complex and hierarchical hierarchical systems of, of governments like we find in the urban centers. So, of course, since then, a lot of things have changed and new advancements in, um, in, in our understanding of how the Asian world works and how the secondary products work. I mean, they kind of uh, show that... Um, some of the assumptions that Andrew Sherrod had at the time were kind of wrong. But still, the beauty of this model is that it takes this holistic approach into social, into society, and it sees changes in one part of it influencing and triggering changes in another. And that's, and that's the beauty of it, regardless if some of the things have proven wrong or not. Right. Now, you, you did mention something um, just a second ago that you're, there's certain evidence that started popping up I'm curious, how do archaeologists, like I would imagine there's a lot of challenges in identifying some of this uh, archaeological evidence. So 
what do you use? What do you find? What are you looking for when you say, okay, there it is. There's, there's some evidence of secondary products. Um, example, dairying. How do you sift through that? Um, what are you looking for? Okay, let's, let's focus on dairying, actually, because I think it's one of the best examples that people have focused a lot and they try to identify it. So we have different ways to approach dairying in, um, in, in past societies, let's say. And of course, like everything in archaeology, not every approach is it's applicable everywhere. It depends on what we have and what we find, let's say. So one of the early examples that Sherat actually cited a lot was the use of iconography. So in 4th millennium BC Mesopotamia, for example, we have the depiction, depictions suggesting milking occurring in some seals, but we also have clear depictions of people milking cows on a relief band from, from Ur, for example. Then we have the material culture. Other people have focused on the material culture, especially on ceramics used for milking, like, and not only the amphoras that usually appear together, like in the iconographic um, depictions of, of Mesopotamia, but we also had an example with ceramic sieves, which they are associated with the linear pottery culture of Europe. And these people identify and suggested that these sieves were involved with milk processing because they compared these vessels with the traditional vessels that shepherds were using in the Apennines, and they actually looked very much the same. And another very popular approach, with its pros and cons like everything, is the use of animal bones, which is actually something super cool. Um, essentially what they do is that they st by studying the animal bones of animals, they try to create, to estimate the time of death of the animal, but also the sex of the animals. And then they create sex and mortality profiles. And then by comparing these profiles and checking like how long most of the islands are survive and how, for example, each sex survives through time in these animals, they try to figure out how they could have been exploited by the human by, by the by the humans at the time. So for example, for milking milking, it is assumed that in order to be possible and be sustainable, you need more female animals surviving until maturity. Otherwise it wouldn't work. And of course I'm 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 oversimplifying this approach and there are much more parameters that need to be taken into account, but at least just to get an idea. And then with all these advancements that happen in archaeological sciences the, the last 20 years, let's say, we have even more ways to approach milking. We have people, for example, using organic residue analysis on pots that we assume that were used in, in, um, in, milk pro in dairying processing, in milk processing, but also potentially in other activities. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, we do have evidence of fatty acids associated with, with milk been distinguished from, from other fats that are associated with, with the animal per se. So this is another approach. There is a limited use of isotopic analysis as well. There was this paper that I've read that people have actually tried to, to use isotope analysis to identify them, the diet of animals and check if, for example, calves were used in stimulating milk in older animals. That's a practice that even like traditional shepherds use nowadays. And of course, we have like the, the overexpanding field of paleogenetics, which people have actually used to try to see when people actually became lactose tolerant, because before that, we were all lactose intolerant. Right. So that's, that's, that's more or less the major approaches to, to investigating. So, so this, is, um, this is clearly an interdisciplinary. Absolutely. Like uh, um, approach. I mean, you can't just go at it in with one point of view, so to speak. You need to have all all your tools in the toolkit, and you need to be working within different departments to approach this. If I'm getting it right, it, it is. But at the same time, it's kind of very restricted of what available, what is available for you. So for yeah. most of the cultures around the world, for example, iconography is not available. We only have very, very few places that you can see iconographic evidence of milking, for example. Ceramic vessels and residue analysis is actually something which is relatively cheap and it's, it's the way forward, let's say. Yeah. But also we have, 
yeah, other other techniques like paleogenetics and, and isotopic analysis are much more expensive. So this could be a restriction as well. It's trying to combine different things regarding of what's the funding and what's the um, and what's the available material that you have in front of you that you right. can use. So one scholar, uh, Ingold, in 93, I think, coined the term taskscape, but you sort of springboard off that and you come up with this idea of a cheesescape uh, as a knowledge scape associated with cheese with uh, cheese making. So what's your approach now? Like, How do you take this concept of, of taskscapes and use it to look at cheese specifically and dairying and all that? Just scared, Andreas, that we're actually gonna get a little bit too theoretical now. I'm gonna try. <laughs> bit. Well, this is—I I promise that this is the last question before we dive into halloumi. No, honestly, I do like <laughs> this question a lot, and and I think I actually gonna answer this question with a little story at the beginning. That go for it. It's actually, I think, it's gonna work in our case. So. Let's say first, because I need to admit it, it's, it's not my term. While I was writing this paper, my partner actually came up with, and, and it's great because it attracts so much attention, and I'm so thankful of her, of, of giving me this amazing term, of coming up with this amazing term to use, regardless of if he's correct or not. Yeah, so when I saw that, I, I was immediately drawn to the paper. You know, I'm, I'm going through all these articles. I'm like, cheesescapes, what is this all about? <laughs> it really, it, it's a very catchy phrase, let's say. But okay, let's let's start with the story. So when the issue, the, the issue of the journal that included this paper, the Cheesecake paper, was launched at Cambridge eventually, the editors actually invited the famous archaeologist, the famous anthropologist Tim Ingold, to give the main lecture. And we were all so excited because it wasn't only me that cited his work on, on our paper, all of us did more or less. So we are so excited to hear what he has to say about, about this work. So he started his talk in a way by saying that since the moment he introduced this concept of taskscape, as, as you very correctly mentioned, the academic world just got overwhelmed by scapes. And we have, for example, soundscapes, we have seascapes, we have knowledgescapes, we even have, for God's sake, cheesecape, which is hilarious to mention. But we do even come up with, with scapes like cheesecake. And he also said that it kind of felt that everybody just missed the point. Because in the end of the day, all these scapes that we are talking about are actually part of, of the human landscape. It's part of, of this extended experiential landscape that people are living in. And honestly, I totally agree with him. Our terminology is massively problematic. Even the cheesecake, it's massively problematic because even if we don't want to admit it, it prioritizes one aspect of the human life the one that we are actually investigating, over all the rest of the things that make humans humans, essentially. So what I tried to do, at least with the concept of cheesecake, was to propose that cheese making is also part of the life of people in some communities and that we cannot investigate it without having in mind at least as many parameters as possible associated with the life in this community. We need to be able to, to talk about how people ended up doing these things and how they learned to do these things and where and how they're getting their raw materials. What else do they do to, to survive? How do they distribute the, the final products and how do they maintain these networks of, of distribution, let's say? How is their belief system involved in the, in the entire process of, of making cheese, for example, and many other parameters that we haven't, we, we really don't include. And, and that's the problem with this concept because... It's so difficult to apply it in archaeology that you miss the people and you just end up with, with the material. But at least through this ethnoarchaeological approach, working with cheese and, and seeing approaching cheese-making techniques and processes through this perspective makes you realize all these forces that they need to be together in order of something, in order that something is gonna work. It's it's what Ingot likes to to term as all these things that they are in enmeshed together and you cannot disentangle them somehow. And that's what I try to do with the cheesecake. It's, it's a catchy phrase, yes, but it's a phrase that it has its problems, but it tries to at least promote the idea that cheese making is part of the wider life of people. So let's talk about halloumi then, because this is what you use to sort of explore cheesecapes and, eth and ethnoarchaeology through halloumi. And so I was hoping that for those who are listening who shockingly may not have heard of halloumi, 
Could you just take a moment to, to tell us about, about what halloumi is? What is its defining traits and what differentiates it from, say, feta cheese or mozzarella? How do we, uh, what's so unique about halloumi? So, I mean, let's start with the, with the idea that halloumi is by law a product of Cyprus. It's part of its heritage and it has like a, a protected designation of origin from the European Commission currently. It is distinguished by its, its, its squeaky texture and the relatively high melting point, which makes it suitable to be eaten raw, but you can also cook it, grill it, fry it, put it in the oven. And it's mainly produced using sheep and goat milk. At least this is what the, the European side says. But you can also use cow milk if it, it will also do the job, let's say. Nowadays, nowadays, I think that you can only find a very specific type of halloumi that you can, in, in the supermarkets all around the world, including Cyprus, actually, which is a little bit sad. And it's mostly because of, of the legislation, because it has this designation of origin. It needs to be produced in a very specific way to be recognized as halloumi. It's, it's more or less, it looks like a, a white faulted lamp, let's say. Mm-hmm. Still, though, if, if we take the more traditional approach to halloumi, and if you go to small household-based enterprises that make halloumi and sell it in small-scale networks, let's say, and stuff, you can find a lot of variability in it. For example, in the Bafos area, as far as I know, you get like this stereotypical, let's say, white-folded version of the halloumi, while in the Trodos Mountains, you can also get like the white unfolded one. Whereas in the east part of the island, in the Famagusta district, you can actually get a more reddish version, which is unfolded. So it's not something static. There is a lot of variability in it, but it has these main characteristics of being like its texture and its high melting, melting temperature. So that, that I've always found interesting. My, my mom, she's from uh, Bitilia, and they've always, I mean, as far as I, I've, as, as far as I can remember, the halloumi we would always eat was always folded, and there was always mint, actually, inside the, mm-hmm. the yeah. halloumi. I don't know if that's a regional variation, the addition of mint. But with that being said, um, admittedly, I had no idea about a red version. I, I Actually, I think I first encountered it in, in your article. I actually was taken aback by it. Not something you encounter, like you said. What makes it red? What's the what's what's so different between that and the more common white versions? Okay, I mean, it's not only the red and, and the white and the folded and the unfolded. All these different, all these differences, these minor differences in in the halloumi. It's it's actually part of a much wider process. Let's say what I think it's happening, and it's something that I really want to investigate it much more in the future because I just scratched the surface with with the work that I've done up until now, is try and figure out how we end up in this in this variability. Because in the end of the day, the process of making all these different versions of halloumi, it's not that different. It's, it's more or less the same. The steps are more or less the same. It's just little changes in some steps that they could produce these, these differences. For example, the red halloumi has a slightly longer cooking temperature. Folding the halloumi is just a slight change in, in, in the step where you fashion the product just before you cook it. So it's just a little change in the gestures that people are doing. And I mean, trying to think a little bit back, it could be different ways of doing halloumi and how these regional um, characteristics get more st- they get more stereotypical in different areas through area and through the tra- through through time and through the transmission of knowledge and all of these things. So yes, in the end of the day, the process is the same. It's it's very much similar. It's just slight changes in some of the steps, which they give you at least they give you a little hint of of the human experience behind of behind making halloumi. Now I know this isn't your expertise, this isn't your background, but um, in researching for this, you you did have to kind of explore the history a little bit of halloumi production in Cyprus, halloumi as we know it. What's the earliest textual evidence that we have of halloumi, not not of cheese making, but specifically of this type of cheese um, in your in your research? As, as you said, it's not my area of expertise, and while I was Doing my research for writing this paper, I, I popped onto an amazing article written by, by Professor Froso Egumenidou, actually, in the University of Cyprus, 
who is, which I am in total debt to her because the amazing work she did about Halloumi and about the ethnography of Cyprus in general is just, is just amazing. And it's a treasure for all of us. So based on what she found and what I, I read through her paper, let's say that the earliest textual evidence that we have for Halloumi, they go as back as the 16th century AD. We have, for example, in the, in the chronicles of Florio Bustron, a Venetian administrator of Cyprus, a mention of a cheese called Kalumi, which was, according to him, produced in the island in, in March. We also have the Doge Leonardo Dona, who also lived in the island for a few days, for a few for a small amount of time, that he also mentions this cheese on his manuscripts. And we have other wanderers like Elia di Pesaro who also notes a cheese made, this cheese made using a mixed, a mixed version of milk of sheep, goat, and cow. And then we jumped a little bit into the 18th century, and we have other mentions of halloumi being produced in, using goat's milk. And this, uh, this guy, Richard Pocock, also has this sassy note saying that it's the only decent cheese in the area, more or less. And then in the 18th century, we have historical documents mentioning halloumi. We have in the 19th century, poems and, and theatrical plays mentioning Halloumi. And all these mentions since then and up until today, it shows how important Halloumi is, not only for the diet of the Cypriot people, but also for their life in general. It's part of the way of their way of living, more or less. You know, it's interesting because um, Halloumi as a cheese has really caught on in these in the recent years. And we've seen production on, on global levels. And I can just share with you a little anecdote here where I am in Toronto. I live near a, there's a, there's a significantly large Italian population in Toronto and they have a lot um, traditional uh, Italian grocery stores. And one that's near my house, uh, like I said, it, it, it serves a, an Italian population. And yet in the dairy section, you know, you can find halloumi. It's there, you know, they carry it. So it's, 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 it, it shouldn't surprise anyone that this is this is caught on, and it's something that has been um, commercialized. But you know, it still survives on a local level with village workshops throughout the island. And in your paper, you visit uh, a small little town and you meet with Kiriako and Banayota. So, can you tell me how does this come about, or what are these uh, traditional village workshops that you talk about? And and, you know, what is it that you set out to do right now? So you have Halloumi, you have your lens, your framework that you're working with, uh, and you meet with Kiriako and Banayota. Can you just kind of paint a picture for us? Yeah, but yeah. I mean, let's start, Andreas, by saying like here in the UK, it's exactly the same as you described. You can find Halloumi literally even in the smallest supermarket around. And it's, okay, it's not like the one that Banayota makes, for example, but it's still decent, let's say. So, okay, I'm, I'm going to be honest here with you, and I'm just going to remove a little bit the academic facade for now and just say sure. that <laughs> Kiriakos and Panayota are just like my grandparents, and, and I've always my village of origin in Cyprus. So it was really easy for me to get into this thing and get as much information as possible for this paper. Right. But I also got like to eat the final product in the end. So it was a huge win for me in general. <laughs> so, yes. I think that I think that I came with the idea for this paper since uh, since the moment I actually heard about about ethnoarchaeology and growing up with these people and spending time with these people I could always see that there was so much potential there there was so many interesting things happening and when I learned more about ethnoarchaeology I thought that you know what that's actually a great idea and somebody should do it and I was shocked that nobody has done it before so I, I took the opportunity and when, when the issue when the issue about knowledge scapes was advertised and they were looking for papers, I thought I'm gonna take my chance and I'm gonna go for it. Funny enough, it was right before the pandemic, the outbreak of the pandemic. So I literally managed to interview them and spend some time with them seeing how they produce the halloumi, participating to the whole process and everything, so that I can make my notes and stuff three days before the first lockdown started. So I was actually very lucky with the whole thing, and it gave me a lot of work, a lot of material to work on during those awful days of house isolation. Mm -hmm. Yes, the idea was that I want to see how 
Kyriakos and Panayota using the traditional mode of production of halloumi, let's say, how, how, how do they do it? What is involved? What, what forces are involved in making halloumi? And I thought that this is the best place because I can have access to any kind of information I need for doing that. You know, this, their family, very traditional family, and I would imagine they have very traditional modes of economic production. I mean, is, was everything based on sheep and goats? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It was actually part of it was part of, of my project as well, because before sitting with them and doing the halloumi, like in order to, to get into the whole cheesecake perspective, let's say, you need to know how these people, what's the modes of the economic modes of production for these people, what they do, uh, where they're coming from. So I had I spent like two days interviewing them and trying to understand to get as much information as possible about all these different facets. And honestly, it reminded me a little bit like my time when I was a child and spending time with them. I, I was always so confused with the idea that I cannot pin down exactly what they're doing. I cannot pin down and say that like I could do with my parents of being like, ah, my mom is a shop owner. I can mm-hmm. I can give an identity to them. I can give a title to them because yeah. they were doing a little bit of everything. And I guess like it falls within this this framework that archaeologists like to codify as mixed agropastoral economy, more or less. <laughs> so they had a small herd of animals, around 50 sheep, five goats, and three to five cows. And they also had a small piece of land, around one hectare. So what they were doing was that they were selling some of the animals for meat and some of the milk that those animals were producing. While they're using, they were using the rest of the milk to, to make cheese and also to sell this cheese in a need-based commission, more or less. They were also using the, the, the small plot of land they had. They were planting potatoes. And this was happening at least twice a year, if I'm not mistaken, maybe three as well. So what was happening is that the herd management, let's say, was a job involving mostly the, the male part of the family. So it was Kyriakos and his two sons, while the potato plantation was something that the entire, the, the whole seven members of the family were actually involved in. But I also remember that even though they were always busy, as far as I remember, and I guess they were even more busy when before I came around, let's say, Kyriakos was always making time to go to, to the local Cafe Neon and spend some time there and have a coffee there. And mm-hmm. usually when he was coming back, he was always having this, this funny attitude of being like, ah, I brought you some more orders for halloumi. So being so much confused, I specifically asked them, what was the most, when I interviewed them, what was the most important part of, of the different stuff that you are doing? The, what is the thing that actually ensures your survival as a household? And their answer was unanimous, honestly. They just said that everything, because without the combination of things, we, the, the income will never be enough. What, what is the process in, in making halloumi? What are some of the tools that they use? In, in its production. I mean, one thing that I came across is you mentioned bithkia. I'm like, well, what is that? <laughs> so, and why is this important in the process? And I'm sure they, they actually went through this with you. I think they even, you even identified a nine-step process, which we don't have to go through the full, whole nine, but how do you break that down? How can you break it down? Okay, let's start. I mean, it's not as complicated. It's not that complicated, actually. And I was shocked as well when I realized that it's not that complex of a process. So the only things, the only essential things that you need to make halloumi, it's actually milk, the substance, as you mentioned, pifkia, and and salt. People are mostly using sheep and goat milk because of practical reasons, because the milk that these animals produce is denser, so they have a higher yield. You can still use cow milk, for example, but instead of having, for example, five kilos of sheep milk to produce one kilo of halloumi, to produce five pieces of halloumi, let's say. With uh, cow milk, you will need 10 kilos. That's why people are mostly using sheep and goat instead of, of cow milk. Then moving to pithkia, let's say. Pithkia essentially is, is what makes the magic happen. It's what stimulates the milk to clot and to create the curd which is the lamp that later on cooks and becomes halloumi, and, and the whey, the liquid substance that is left behind. Scientifically speaking, it is what it contains, those enzymes that stimulate the lamping. Originally, 
people used to call pichia the, the dried and salted stomach of newborn ovicaprid and pig, which were solely fed on milk and nothing else. And that was important. And that's actually an interesting way that it, it, it could make sense to, to try and investigate this in the past, but that's for another story. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. So this, I believe, is, is what we would call rennet. If exactly. I'm not mistaken. Exactly. And so now in order to make cheese, rennet, you can just purchase. But if I'm not mistaken, what you're saying is in the past, they would actually have to get this from the, the animal's stomach. Exactly. They were actually right. getting the stomach when they were slaughtering an animal. They were saving the stomach of, of a young calf or piglet that it was only fed with milk and it didn't take in any proper food before. Right. And they were just drying it out and saving it into, into a salty environment, salting it and, and into a salty environment. And then every time they were using it, they were just cleaning it out a couple of times, testing it in a small glass of, of, of milk to see if it's actually, if everything can go work. And then they were doing it in a more bigger, in a, in a more excessive, um, in a more bigger quantity, let's say, of milk. So essentially what Panayota and Kiriakos were using for making halloumi, it involves things that you can find in every household, like a stove, knives, bowls, speakers, spoons, a scale. But you also get some stuff which seems to be more specialized, like metal basins, long ladles and long skimmers, talaria, which is actually a very small, densely assembled basket, or the more modern version of it is actually plastic balls full of holes, which remind me a little bit the ceramic sieves that I mentioned earlier in the linear pottery culture of Europe. I think mm-hmm. that's the, the, the related, the, the equivalent of that thing. And you also need a tiroskamni, which is translated, this is originally translated as the cheese bench. And it is essentially a small declining bench, which has an opening in the one end so that you can collect all the excreted whey, the liquid, while squeezing and, and processing the curd, more or less. So essentially what happens is that first they warm the milk, then they put in, and it should be around 38 degrees 100 Celsius, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, more or less. Then they put the pithia, then a lamp is created on the surface, and using mainly their hands, they are collecting, they are disturbing this lamp, and they are collecting this lamp, squeezing it. Then they use the remaining whey, and they boil it again to create, to to get like smaller pieces of curd that they emerge and these they store them again but without being squeezed and this is anari the byproduct the second product of this cheese making process which is much softer and has a much smoother taste compared to halloumi and then they just cook the the products they cook the little pieces of curd in order to become halloumi this takes around an hour and a half and, you know, like the red halloumi, for example, takes an hour and 45 minutes, while the mm-hmm. white one takes an hour and 20 minutes. And, mm-hmm. and then they just collect all these things. They leave them cool down. They cover everything with a mixture of salt and, and mint. So I guess like your grandmother, usually they put a piece of mint in the middle. In the middle, right. What, what Panayota was doing was mixing the mint with the salt and then salting the entire piece with it. Okay. And... Now- and that's it. And then you store the products in bottles through a solution of uh, which is composed of, of, of whey and salt. And you can save this halloumi into a shady and cool environment for up to a year. I was surprised that um, a lot of the process in making halloumi, making, uh, making halloumi is very proceduralized. Yet your grandfather, knowing this, like despite knowing the exact, say, temperature of, at which, you know, you bring the... Uh, the milk to boil, he's able to do it despite, you know, sort of with just uh, the touch of the finger. He's able to kind of figure this out, which I found really interesting. I think, I think, uh, Andreas, that's that's one of the most interesting parts that I've 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 experienced by seeing them doing this. It's it's essentially it shows how these people learned how to how to do it. What what we like to fancily address as like the transmission of knowledge from one generation to the other. These people didn't have a manual to learn how to do it. 
they didn't have like, you know, a, a written recipe book that they had to follow because somebody wrote it down and, and it was like standardized and, and fixed. These people th- learned through practice and by and by working with other people before them. So for them, the their body memory actually overtakes their actual memory. It's all these gestures and feelings that they lead to the production of halloumi. It's like the natural flow of steps. It's, it's, it's like choreography in a way. You cannot enumerate, you cannot enumerate the steps, but they just come naturally for them. And, and exactly, I mean, they know the basic information. They know that Pithya works the best, for example, in 100 degrees Fahrenheit. But still, for them, this doesn't mean anything, essentially. Because for them, the important thing is to reach this exact feeling on the finger, when, which it's going to signal that we need to pull the Pithya in or we need to take the Halloumi out or something like this. It shows exactly this process of how they learn to do it. And it doesn't involve reading it, apparently. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I see my mom doing uh, similar sorts of things, and and I'm always kind of taken aback because if I if I ever set out to cook, uh, to make something, uh, I use all these tools, and and the tools they, they they measure everything to the exact degree in the exact second, and and I'm kind of constrained by my lack of knowledge, so to speak. I rely so much on following a recipe, you know, to to the T. Uh, so I'm always amazed by that. I always find it really interesting. As as interesting as I did to find the the religious element to it, you know, like your your grand your grandfather making a sign of the cross when uh, I don't remember exactly when, but there's there's you know a religious element to that. So what's your interpretation of that, and what what do you make of its significance? It's actually it's not it's not only on one step. It's literally in in most of the steps, and that was the thing that. When I notice it, when when I observe them doing that, I found it very intriguing, because they were essentially they were doing the the shape of the cross in almost every step by pouring the milk into the basins. They crossed it with their hands. Then by pouring the pithya, they did the same process again. Then when they were cutting the halloumi, they did the same gestures again, the, say, the shape of the cross, and over and over and over again. And and I couldn't help it, and I had to ask them. So, I mean, I got the expected answer, which still, though, makes things very interesting. Panayota was like, my son, how can we expect to have a good product if we don't ask for the blessing? And honestly, I mean, this is the response that I was expecting for. But combining this response with the consistency that they were doing it, I mean, Crossing the halloumi, crossing every step of the process, it felt so much integrated into the whole process. It was as important as keeping the right temperatures or keeping up with the time or mixing the right ingredients. I was wondering at some point if, if by any chance this thing, this crossing thing is it's omitted, what is going to happen? Which honestly, it could never happen because it's again, it's part of the choreography of, of making halloumi. These people learn to make halloumi this way and for them it's important to, to do this step. It's as important as everything else. But I guess if somebody asked me what would happen if they didn't do the cross, I mean, the product would still be the same. But for those people, it wouldn't be worth enough. It wouldn't be good. And I could even see them throwing them throwing it away or not selling it just because, you know, it's not blessed. It's not a good product anymore. So let's get to the um, the $64,000 question here. So how in your work, how does the halloumi production provide us insight into the role of daring in these, in these early societies? Okay. Honestly, Andrea, you are coming up with, with very good questions. That was the the entire point of the paper that I wrote, actually. And honestly, there is no way that we can encounter or identify this exact way of making cheese into the early societies. At least as far as I can think and know, I don't know how we can encounter, how, how can we recognize this exact halloumi process made in the past. But we still know that in the past, people were processing milk and they were making things like cheese. And what halloumi, what this halloumi making process make us realize is that there are certain steps that need to be followed. Like, for example, the enzyme, the renin, the, the pithya, let's say. People need to have this in order to, to make cheese, in order to process milk. And, I mean, 
this enzyme as as the traditional way of of using pichia, using like the um, the dried stomach of of piglets and calves, showed us it is a resource that people of the past actually had. So at least now we know what we should be looking for in order to see this cheese making production on on a, on a very small scale. Let's say there is also there are also specific tools that they need to be involved in this process. And at least the halloumi making process shows us how this tool could look like and how and what their essential characteristics that they need to have, like the skimmers or the talaria, the, the sieves, the ceramic sieves of the past, how they should be looking for and how they were used and what are the main characteristics that they could make cheese happen, let's say. It also gives us a perspective of how these products could have been stored in the past. We saw that the halloumi can be stored without a fridge, without electricity, up to a year, just by using um, this co- this solution of whey and, and salt. That's another sustainable practice for the pa- of the people of the past that they could have been using or similar practices to, to store their products. But on the other hand, this cheese making, this, this cheesecake approach on the halloumi making actually made us realize how how integrated halloumi production is in the rest of the activities of the household in the in the household world let's say as we saw from kiriagos and panayota the panayota's example cheese making is an economic strategy that it was used in combination with other with other stuff to maintain and survive the survival of, of the family and we can also see through the entire process that every step of the process was kind of linked in a way with other facets, other practices that the family was doing. The meal was coming from the family herd, for example. So if something bad happened to the family herd, this would influence the way that people, they would make the cheese. And this would influence another. It would have meant that other practices need to be done in order to maintain the survival and all these things. And we also see like the way that the distribution networks work, which is basically working essentially through a face-to-face contact, face-to-face contacts, and these networks of good reputation that could be made by Kiriakos going to the Cafe Neon and, and buying a coffee to somebody, a cup of coffee to somebody, or Panayota's product being super good and, and having this good reputation of a good halloumi, increasing the demand, let's say. But essentially what all these things shows us is that the life of this simple, in quotation marks, household is actually not that simple. And people were actually having like very complicated, diversified strategies in order to maintain their survivals. And at least it gives us this framework of how we should be approaching the early, the, the communities and the households of the, of the early societies, the pre-urban societies, let's say, or the non-urban societies of the past. It's not simple. It's not straightforward. There are a lot of forces involved. Raphael, that, this was this was awesome. <laughs> this really was fantastic. I'm so happy that I uh, reached out to you because I've always wanted to do uh, an episode on Halloumi and this approach, this ethnoarchaeological lens really just made it fascinating. I mean, you said it so well as to how we can use this process, this, this cheese making to, to better understand these pre-urban societies. It was really, really fun listening to you talk. Thank you so much, Raphael. Thank you, Andreas. I mean, honestly, this work for me, it was also a dream. And when I actually managed to, to, to start working a little bit on, on this topic, I realized how much potential our our Cypriot heritage has, let's say, and how many things we can actually do and learn from these people. And and it's fascinating. And I hope that I will be able to do it in in the future as well, like more intensively, let's say. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know what? Before I let you go, I have one more question. And I'm um, just looking at my notes here and I realized I, I skimmed over this and I wanted to pose this to you. You actually write that uh, associated dairying with changes occurring in rural communities that triggered the rise of more complex societies and way of life. And what occurred to me was the question of which came first. Did dairying um, lead to the rise of more complex societies and urban landscapes, or did urban landscapes and more complex societies allow dairying to 
kind of emerge. So let's say that that was like the assumption that the secondary product revolution model had. It had mm-hmm. essentially that not only daring, but the entire like package, let's say, of secondary products and the intensification of this package was one of the key roles that led to these more complex societies. I'm not a big fan of, of the term complex societies, but let's call them complex societies. Okay. So essentially, these when when the model was was promote was was proposed and and Andrew Sherrod like triggered all these kind of discussions about the topic. People make it a goal of their life to actually prove when are the when are the earliest evidence of secondary products exploitation actually appear, and that's like most of the literature that I've read about this topic is actually establishing when was the first time that milk was exploited, when was the first time that wool was taken advantage of what, and and all these kind of things, which is it's fascinating and it's interesting. It doesn't really diminishes the model because the model is. It stimulates thinking, and that's the beauty of it. But just to keep it simple, some uh, some studies, some more recent studies, like the last 15 years, if I'm not mistaken, have shown that we have evidence of milk and milk processing on, on ceramic vessels analyzed by the organic residue analysis that they go as back as, as the 7th millennium BC in, in, in Anatolia, around the Sea of Marmara, for example, we go as back as uh, what was it, fifth or sixth millennium BC in uh, in in Eastern Europe, and fourth millennium BC, if I'm not mistaken, in 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 Britain. So, essentially, we do have evidence of daring appearing much earlier, much before the proper the the proper appearance of of the first urban centers and these more complex hierarchical societies. So what I think this means is that people were actually using daring much before they decided, some of them at least, to intensify its production, among other things. And this is how the model that Kyriakos and Panayota had showed us with the mixed agropastoral, the mixed agropastoral economy in, in a household, using these daring practices as a way of diversification of the different economic practices for survival, could actually point to some uh, to some could actually have some value for the past because it seems that the the people of the past had daring as one of their economic activities for maintaining the stability of, of, of the household and the stability of the community and, and their survival, let's say, without necessarily having to, to, to turn to urban centers, let's say. So these processes are actually much more complex and they can be used in different ways according to the goals and, and, and the perspectives and, and the approaches of the people of the past, let's say. Fantastic. Um, Rafael, again, thank you so much. Andreas, thank you very, very much for the opportunity here. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye-bye.